0: Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that
1: was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on them. that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people
2: in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll examine President Biden's student debt forgiveness. How much will it cost? Will it fuel inflation? And who will benefit? We'll ask Ben Ritz. He's director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. And then we'll turn our attention to the crucial but often neglected task of passing the 12 annual appropriations bills that fund federal government agencies. Keep in mind that if the bills don't pass by the end of the fiscal year on September 30th, many government operations will have to shut down. And our guest for that segment is David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker. That's a daily roundup of key federal spending and budget issues. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join me for the conversation. First up today is student debt relief and our guest, Ben Ritz. Prior to joining the Progressive Policy Institute, Ben staffed the Bipartisan Policy Center's Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings, and he worked on other budget issues at the BPC, including budget process and the federal debt limit. And uh, notably, before joining the Bipartisan Policy Center, Ben served as legislative outreach director for a group called the Concord Coalition. Ben, Tory, Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. So, Ben, the president kicked off quite a firestorm in Washington when he announced a new policy on student debt forgiveness. Basically, it would forgive $10,000 of student loan debt for those making under 125,000 or I guess 250 for households and 20,000 for those with Pell grants. It's raised a number of questions regarding the the cost, the effect on inflation, its effectiveness on controlling uh, higher education costs and its uh, fairness to those who didn't take out student loans. But it has a lot of popularity among uh, young voters uh, who are saddled with huge student loans. And the White House says that those loans, quote, make it harder for them to build wealth, like buying homes, putting away money for retirement or starting small businesses. So, You've written about this, um, looked into this. Where do you where do you come down on uh, the cost and the effectiveness of this <laughs> student loan debt forgiveness proposal in ten 10 seconds <laughs> or less? Gird <laughs> <your
3: loins.
4: laughs> uh I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I it's going to cost, you know, the so one issue is that we don't actually know how much it's going to cost because uh, there are a lot of outstanding questions, like what share of the debt being canceled was never going to be repaid to begin with. Um, we don't know how many people are going to take advantage of the program, uh, but also the White House just didn't bother to produce a cost estimate. So, and the distributional estimates they produced were also, uh, you know, somewhat lacking. So, and we can get into that more in a bit. But as far as cost, uh, we've seen estimates from. Outside groups like the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget and Penn Wharton budget model that put this probably in the range of about half a trillion dollars, uh, plus or minus a couple hundred billion. Uh, Depending on some assumptions, it could be even worse, uh, but we can get into that later.
2: The White House says it's 24 billion a year.
4: Um, Are they just like on separate planets? So the truth is, we don't really, again, we don't really know what goes in, what's going into that cost estimate because the White House hasn't produced anything uh, comprehensive. Uh, I know there could be different assumptions about repayment rates and, uh, you know, how much of the money would be paid back in a given year, but we don't know because they haven't produced it. I know that
2: Steve and Tori are chomping at the bit to uh, ask some questions about this as well, but let me get in one other question. Uh, One of the big issues has been its effect on inflation. And again, uh, just like the cost, oh, there have been a lot of different estimates about that. But do you think that this would help stoke inflation or do you think it would uh, have very little effect?
4: It's more helpful to think about what the actual number is than just uh, a binary big versus small. Uh, the, the way I would describe it is a, small, a relatively small but persistent effect on inflation. Um, it's probably going to be about uh, between a tenth and a quarter percentage point increase in inflation. Uh, so relative to the magnitude of the uh, of inflation problems today, it's pretty small. But it, as others have pointed out, Mark Baldwin had a good quote on this. It's, it's big relative to the actions that the president can take. It's probably the single most inflationary thing the president uh, could do. And I think more importantly is it's going to be persistent because it's not that he's spending half a trillion dollars this year, the impact is going to materialize as uh, future, what would have been future repayments of debt are no longer made. And so that's money that people will have for additional consumption to bid up the price of goods and services moving forward. So uh, I think in the near term, it's not like we're going to see inflation jump, you know, two or three percentage points, uh, but it is going to be spread out and it's going to have a long-term impact.
2: Tori, do you want to jump in? I, I, I maybe stole your inflation question. Go
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just stay with the inflation question for a second. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago, um, Biden, President Biden signed into law the the IRA, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, which is a a big piece of legislation that would affect, uh, help remediate climate change and a a bunch of other things. Uh, It has some healthcare pieces in it. And one of the aspects of that legislation that they were trumpeting was the fact that it would help reduce inflation. Have they suddenly stepped all over their own message by unilaterally developing this this student loan debt issue?
4: Yeah, I think absolutely this uh, this undermines the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, That bill produced uh, you know, we're still waiting on the the full final score, but something more than uh, a quarter trillion dollars of deficit reduction right. uh, that would help, you know, cool off inflation. Uh, and this would have more than double the cost. Uh, right. Now, again, because of the timing uh, and the scoring, you know, I don't know that it's going to be, it's going to reverse it over two times, but it's, it, it, they've certainly more than uh, offset the benefits. And I think that it, heavily undermines their ability to say that they are doing everything they can to fight inflation
3: mm-hmm. uh, second question for you um, and let me preface this by a little background on my own sort of philosophy um, I'm an institutionalist you know I believe in the three branches of government you know the legislative branch which passes the laws the executive branch which implements the laws and the judiciary branch which enforces the laws. Here we've got a situation where it seems like when it comes to the student uh, loan debt relief, um, the president has acted unilaterally as both Congress and the executive branch. Um, Congress did not tell the executive branch hey Pat they didn't pass laws that said hey go write regs that will um, alleviate you know ten to twenty thousand dollars in student loan debt and by the way change the the income debt repayment system for, for student loans um, and they certainly didn't appropriate money for that. Um, this is something that President Biden did unilaterally by himself with the stroke of the pen in the executive branch. Um, this far surpasses, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this far surpasses anything President Obama did with uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for Children. It far surpasses in expense um, what President Trump did in terms of deferring uh, defense money for the stupid wall along the, the southern border is what president biden done here is it legal is it expected to stand will someone challenge this what what are so what are we are students taking advantage of a program that's going to be yanked out from underneath them a few years from now when eventually the supreme court says to president biden i'm sorry you didn't have the authority to do this what's what's the what are the sort of legal uh, aspects uh and the legal questions around this
4: so the short answer to all of that is maybe <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a constitutional law uh, specialist. So all of this is just sort of my mostly layperson understanding. Um, I think it's pretty clear that this would be the most, uh, if it was allowed to stand, the most expensive executive action probably ever. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that does raise serious issues of uh, you know, power of the purse. It is a big constitutional issue. Um, I think that even a politically neutral Supreme Court would struggle with it. And I think that um, I would be personally surprised if a Supreme Court packed with Republican appointees would uphold it. Uh, So I think there is a real risk that, you know, people start spending this money thinking that they uh, they've had their debts canceled. And then because of the Supreme Court and the the law, uh, President Biden then has to go back to them and say, Sorry, actually, uh, that that was wrong. Um, you you actually do owe that money, and I think that's gonna that would create even more uh, problems than we had before. The other thing I'll say is whether or not the president has the power to do this. I think it's pretty clear the president should not have the power to do this. Uh, mm-hmm. So even if the courts find that that there is a technicality that allows him to to do this kind of mass cancellation. I think giving the pre- this would open the door to presidents being able to unilaterally spend uh, over a trillion dollars without congressional approval. Uh, I think that's a very dangerous precedent, and if yes. the courts aren't going to put a guardrail on it, I think Congress absolutely does need to. Steve, in
1: my in my layman's perspective, let me weigh in on the legal question um, for just a moment. I mean, as I understand it, the the statutory authority. Um, that the the Secretary of Education is relying on is essentially sort of this emergency language. So in the event of a war or a national disaster or some sort of emergency, he has the authority to adjust the student loan payments to reflect the, the damage that could be done, you know, to students who are suffering because of some emergency. And so, you know, the pretense here is that, well, the economy just suffered a big shock uh, because of the COVID pandemic. And so when they deferred payment on loans, you can make a good case that, okay, you got it. At one point, there were 20-something million people unemployed, and you can make a very good case that those 20 million unemployed people are going to have a hard time making their student loan payments. And so there was, you know, some disagreement and grumbling, but it wasn't. There was no real widespread opposition To deferring student payments during the height of the pandemic. But from an economic perspective, I mean, you know, we just in the most recent month, we've regained all the jobs that were lost prior to the pandemic, unemployment is an all time low, the economy is still growing. So to argue that you're going to absolve students of ever repaying debt on the basis of a declaration uh, of COVID being an emergency, I mean, the, the logic is is tenuous at best. The problem from a legal perspective, though, is that the statute is written vaguely enough that if he wants to declare writing off the debt as a response, a necessary response to the pandemic, you know, it gets into a question of what is interpretation of emergency authority and what is necessary. And the courts are usually very deferential to the administration when there is vague but arguably you know relevant statutory language generally the courts defer to the administration in interpreting that language it's only if there's some clear violation or, or you know clear expansion beyond that language that you run into problems so as much as i you know disagree with the decision to to write off the debt i think it's potentially likely that uh And of course, the other problem is it's not clear who has standing to sue. In other words, to bring a case against the administration, somebody has to have standing to sue, which means they have to show that they were harmed by this decision. Obviously, none of the students are going to bring suit because they're not harmed. They're benefiting. And taxpayers, as a general rule, are not allowed to bring suit against the government saying, well, yeah, we're taxpayers and we're going to have to pay for this or the debt's going to go up. And so... You know, it, it's not clear. You know, I, I think I heard one argument that the companies that are debt collectors, if you're a company whose job it is to collect the student debt, and if the government writes all the debt off, then you're out of a job collecting the debt. You know, they might they might have standing to sue potentially. But anyway, it, it's not clear.
2: It's it's so, very vague. Having worked yeah. in an appellate court, there are two things that uh, Relevant. One is you do have to have standing because it has to be an actual case of controversy, not a hypothetical question. The other thing is that um, there need, there should be a remedy in a, in, a, in a case. So sometimes a court will defer, will try to find standing if there is no other way that a uh, provision can be challenged. So, you know, you'd have to wonder whether something that could cost 500 to a trillion dollars over 10 years, that they couldn't find somebody withstanding. But that is a, uh, that is a, a real question. There are so many questions out there. There are two, we're, we're kind of running uh, down here. There are two things I want to put on the table, Ben. You can choose which you want to address uh, thoroughly or not. Um, but one of them that concerns me uh, is whether or not this actually could, it, increase college costs over the long term. Uh, the whole point is you know, student debt is too high because college costs are too high. So this is treating a symptom, uh, potentially, without the underlying cause. Just wanted to get your, your take on that. And the other one is whether this kind of sets up a rolling series of debt reductions, uh, like other things that are in the federal government that are happening. You assume that they're going to happen again, but they're not in any sort of baseline. Uh, you know, do people, uh, you know, people who have the loans now or are about to take out loans will benefit from this? But, you know, people that are in the pipeline, so to speak, in, in high school, I mean, they're not going to get $10,000 chopped off their loans, or will they? I mean, will there just be growing pressure to automatically uh, cut loan
4: costs in the future? So I think I can answer both of those questions uh, together. Which is, uh, when President Biden rolled this out, it, it, we're, we talk about it as student debt cancellation as if it's one action. But really, I think uh, there are three components to it. There is the ten thousand dollars cancellation for everybody, uh, or you know, all, all student debt uh, uh, for, for people under one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. There is the the additional $10,000 for undergraduate debt for people who had Pell Grants. And then there are these changes to income-driven repayment moving forward. And I think that even though the highest cost, at least in the near term, is going to be from the first two, uh, I think the third one is probably the most transformational uh, because it's it sets up in the future uh, future students to pay back significantly a significantly lower portion of their loans than the, the previous generation did. Uh, and so I think that has, I think on the one hand, like that's good. Uh, when we were set, when we opposed broad student debt cancellation, we said that changes to the income driven repayment program uh, would actually be a much better way to do student debt relief. And I still hundred percent believe that, but this was a particularly aggressive way, a version of it. Uh, to the point where the, the share of debt that's going to be forgiven going forward is, I think, going to end up being higher than most people expect right now. And so that, on the one hand, means the pres- future presidents won't have to do rolling debt cancellation uh, because it's going to be canceled automatically. Uh, on the other hand, so the outstanding balance is going to be lower. But on the other hand, uh, it creates a much easier flow of money to colleges uh, it makes it so that future students don't have to be as worried about the cost of college if the federal government is just going to take on the bill. And uh, if it doesn't work out, they can count on it being canceled. And knowing this, universities are going to be able to uh, raise prices further. So I think that um, it's it's probably going to make the college tuition problem worse rather than better. Uh, and it does create a, a, a longer term loan cancellation than I think. It seems based on just focusing on the immediate blanket cancellation.
2: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson and I have been talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about President Biden's student loan forgiveness proposal will be I guess it's more than a proposal. It's going to happen. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we're going to be talking with David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker. David will be talking to us about the uh, appropriations process in Congress. It's uh, edging closer to the end of the fiscal year when all the appropriations bills need to be passed to avoid a government shutdown. Av Harris is going to join me for this segment. David, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here in the din of legislative activity. And there's been a heck of a lot of it and regulatory activity and uh, sometimes overlooked is the crucial and perhaps boring process of appropriations. Every year, Congress has to pass 12 appropriation bills that fund government agencies. And if they don't do it by the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th, A large portion of uh, those government agencies need to shut down, with certain exceptions um, that are too detailed to go into here. But the basic point is that there's entitlement spending or mandatory spending in the federal budget, which is about two thirds of the federal budget, uh, if not a little bit more. And the so-called discretionary spending, which is the part controlled by the annual appropriation bills. Today, we want to talk about those appropriation bills. We've got one month left between now and the end of the fiscal year. David, how close are we to getting those 12 annual appropriation bills passed? Not close, Bob. We're a
0: long ways away. Um, There is about zero chance that they will be done by the time the new fiscal year begins on October 1st. It now seems like both parties are determined to avoid government shutdowns. They've been through that exercise a few times and don't like it. Neither side comes out looking particularly good with a shutdown. So I don't think we're going to see a shutdown. But what we're going to see is another one of these stopgap measures to extend funding into the new fiscal year and keep all federal agencies on autopilot with limited ability to, to fund new things. This year, we had the phenomenon of, of what was called Build Back Better, and then it became the inf- ultimately the Inflation Reduction Act, whatever name you want to give it, the big climate change health care tax package, which actually they did get done finally, but it took all year. It took, it took over a year of negotiation to do it. And, you know, lawmakers like to say they can walk and chew gum at the same time and do multiple things at once. The truth is they usually can't. And, because of that appropriations just got pushed way to the back burner here for months.
2: They don't even do a budget resolution anymore. I mean, we we haven't mentioned this. They're supposed to set numbers in a budget resolution that's supposed to kick off the process. And then they draft their appropriations bills to fit the number in the budget resolution. And one of the difficulties recently has been the failure to do a budget resolution. There used to be budget caps uh, up until very recently, but those came off, what, in last year, 2020?
0: Yeah, and they don't do the budget resolution, the the sort of budget blueprint, um, because it's such a political thing. And, you know, the more Congress is so polarized and the, the tensions are so just so extreme now, Um, The harder it is to do that because it because to do a budget resolution, they have to take all of these votes, particularly in the Senate, the so-called voterama, where they will spend an entire day and night voting on amendments, all of which are really political talking points that they can use on the campaign and to try to put the other party on the spot on on different programs, whatever political points they want to make and it's sort of a distasteful process that no one likes to go through. And in a 50-50 Senate, the way we have it now, it's really hard to even try to pass a budget resolution because you can't afford to lose a single vote. Um, And so it becomes this huge exercise that you can see why they they are eager to avoid it because why go through all that aggravation if you can just – what they end up doing is just sort of – Settling on a top line number, and but you know there's just no agreement in the in the Senate at all. For months, they've been trying to to come up to a bipartisan. You know, they've been talking about trying to do a bipartisan deal on overall spending limits, so that they can get the appropriations process moving. And just like last year, the, it's gone nowhere. Uh, there's been this huge partisan standoff. Mostly between the the fight really is over how to divvy up the pie between defense and non-defense spending. And be, there's a huge disconnect there with Republicans wanting a hell of a lot more money for defense than Democrats are willing to bite off. And so there's just no consensus. that's the same holdup, by the way, that led to last year's huge standoff. And you know, we should remind folks, Bob, last year never got done right it it didn't get done until march of this year so the the final spending package came a half a year late build back better took over uh and of course you had other factors too you had the chairman of senate appropriations pat Leahy, breaking his hip and 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 being out of commission here needing hip surgery uh so there are other factors too but The bottom line was there were no by they met a few times, but nothing was resolved. And the bipartisan talks went nowhere. There's still a huge partisan standoff. And without the bipartisan deal, without congressional leaders kind of sitting down, you know, hammering, hammering heads as needed to get overall spending levels that both parties can live with. All of the rest of it is a sideshow. Once they come back in September, there will definitely have to be a stopgap measure. The question will be, how long will the stopgap last, right? The House Majority Leader, Steny Horrier, told us that it would most likely be into December simply because they're not going to be around in October. They're going to be campaigning for reelection, And in November, they're only going to be here a couple weeks, I think, before the Thanksgiving break. There just won't be time at that point, so it only makes sense to extend this thing into December, which sets up another pre-Christmas rush to get a final spending package together in a hurry, I think, is what we're looking at. If it even happens then, Bob, because this is also complicated now, of course, by the midterm elections, right? And you've got a 50-50 Senate, and there's some incentive here to get it done by Christmas, Um, Because, you know, first of all, both of the appropriations leaders in the Senate are retiring this year. They've both said both Republican and Democrat, Pat Leahy and and Richard Shelby, have both said they would like to get this done before they leave, which means they want to get it done by the end of this year. But on the other hand, if you're a Republican lawmaker and you think Republicans are going to take over the Congress in these midterm elections... Um, why would you want to wrap up the spending package this year when, you know, if you just wait till January, you would have a lot more leverage to rewrite these bills as you like them. Um, at that point, there would be incentive to just extend the stopgap into the new year, into January, February, um, simply because Republicans would then have power to write the bills as they want to, if, in fact, they haven't a sizable enough majority to do that. Of course, that's not clear. So a lot of this may depend on how the elections go.
2: Uh, Do you want to uh, get in a question here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, David, uh, have you heard any,
5: uh, I don't know if you want to call it vague or general, uh, range of uh, what the top line numbers might be, or what both sides might be seeking, and 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 subsequent to that, I, I appreciate your, your your breakdown of defense versus non-defense spending. Uh, what's interesting this year, in particular, though, in terms of defense number, is uh, there's been a lot of military aid and and humanitarian aid that has gotten bipartisan support, you know, for Ukraine and, you know, do, to fight the Russian invasion. So are, are, are there Democrats who are questioning the levels of defense spending when they've already previously voted to to, to hike Pentagon spending that that in the form of military aid to, to Ukraine? Are you seeing that?
0: There are Democrats who want more for defense and they're providing more for defense, we should say, in their bills, in the Democrat written bills. Um, the question is, how much more? Um, There is bipartisan support for Ukraine. um, And, you know, they just passed a 40 billion dollar, I think it was, emergency package for Ukraine that's going to hold them a while now. The, The administration is still releasing in little installments incrementally some of that money. You keep reading about, you know, the new the next weapons package worth X couple billion dollars that goes out over time so they're good there um, but of course that's not the bulk of the defense budget. Um, so what you have is I mean even the House Democrats in their in their appropriations bills called for something like a four four and a half percent increase in defense. Um, but the the Senate Democrats, up the ante, and they're they're calling for a roughly double that amount, something like an eight percent overall increase in defense. And Republicans say even that's not good enough because because with inflation running rampant, you know at at well now it's it, it, you know it was over nine percent now it's like eight and a half percent inflation, um, but they're saying that's still not enough to keep up with inflation and and fund some new priorities with Russia and China, so they want even more than that. And so you're talking about billions of dollars, gaps here to, that have to be reconciled, potentially, potentially over $10 billion, I think. I mean, it's it's pretty sizable in terms of the difference. The Senate Armed Services Committee and their defense policy bill, I think, up the ante again by like $7 billion over what even the appropriations people had. So and and Republicans said that was just a starting point for them. So, So, I mean... You you see that the, there's this this escalation going on here as yeah. to how much how much more is more. I mean, when when is enough enough? Um, and that's the the tension that has to be resolved over defense, and that's the big sticking point because until they can settle on that, you can't get an overall bipartisan agreement on spending levels. So that's what's impacting the top line number more than
5: anything because the the appropriations dollars for defense are so so much larger compared to uh
0: well the top line number yes but the top line number the top line number i don't think is as much at issue it's going to be roughly one point one point rounded off 1.7 trillion dollars um i think is is generally the figure everybody's been using when republicans say they don't they want to increase defense it doesn't mean they want to increase the total discretionary spending pie they want to increase defense by cutting non-defense so the top line number would still stay around the same level i think it's just what is how do you divvy up the pie is the battle how much should go to defense versus non-defense
2: you're listening to facing the future I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Av Harris and I are talking with David Lerman. He's the editor of CQ Budget. Uh, We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, Communications Director Av Harris and I are talking with David Lerman. He's the editor of CQ Budget Tracker. uh, And we're talking about the appropriations process was just uh, just one month to go before the deadline and no appropriation bills have passed yet. Um, Av, before we took the break, you were talking about the so-called continuing resolution, which uh, we're expecting to see some point before the end of the fiscal year. Let's follow up that conversation.
5: Yes, thanks, Bob. So, so David, uh, we've got the clock ticking, right, till the end of September before there's got to be some kind of continuing resolution passed or else uh, some parts of the government may shut down. And I think it's safe to say everybody would like to avoid that uh, before the November elections because voters pretty much hate that. Um, so what are some of the obstacles that you see that might be in the way of getting a, a continuing resolution passed?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you'd think just a simple stopgap measure, which is all that is, to extend current funding just to buy them a little more time, would not be a heavy lift. You'd think they could just pass that quickly, but no, uh, it's a heavy lift. Uh, We've seen time and again that even when they think it would be simple, it ends up being this major, major chore That because because they know it's a must-pass bill. And so then both parties try to exert leverage to attach other measures to it uh, that they want to see passed quickly. And so then they have to bargain over those items um, just to get a deal to to pass a a stopgap, a CR. And this year, I think there are at least two things that come to mind that could trip them up. One, of course, relates to this Build Back Better Inflation Reduction Act package that just passed. There was that big climate change spending package in there. And to get a deal with with Joe Manchin, the pivotal swing vote in the Senate on that package. From coal country, I might add. From coal country in West Virginia. He got an agreement with Democratic leaders to have a vote on legislation to overhaul federal permitting to make some of these energy projects get built more quickly, particularly when it comes to, oh, say pipelines that he likes. Um, And so the question now is, well, how do they pass permitting legislation uh, and guarantee him a vote on that? Well, you've got a 50 50 Senate, and, and you've got some. We've already seen a lot of pushback from House progressives, anyway, saying they're not very keen on this idea, of course, because they want more time for environmental reviews and whatnot. And so it's going to be a chore to pass any kind of permitting legislation. And so the question then is well, maybe the most obvious place to pass permitting legislation would be to attach it to this stopgap funding measure, right? So that, and and I think Manchin has just said the other day at the White House that he envisions the CR as the place to get that done. And so (laughs) then the question is, does that tie up the CR even more, make it more complicated because they would have to fine tune the language of permitting legislation in in order to just pass the stopgap and avoid a government shutdown. There's one other obstacle that I see looming potentially, which is uh, we haven't talked about it in a while now, but you know, there's a pandemic going on. And um, th- the the White House last March requested a supplemental funding package for COVID for more vaccines and therapeutics and testing that they say was running low. Plus there's a concern We need to prepare for the next variant of the virus that comes along. Um, The administration had requested over $22 billion in emergency funding for that back in March. Here we are in August. Um, Still no funding. They had come close, you know, to a deal on COVID funding. A A couple months ago, the Senate reached a bipartisan deal even on something like $10 billion for COVID. And then it blew up in their face because right at that time, the administration announced a decision relating to uh, immigration, that so-called Title 42 measure. We don't have to get into it, but it was, it was extending that to barring migrants from the border, uh, even if they were applying for asylum because of the pandemic. And the Biden folks were trying to lift that restriction And Republicans just blew up. They were irate about it. They said, if you don't think COVID is a crisis at the border anymore, then why is COVID a crisis at home? No, we don't think we need this extra COVID money anymore. So, you know, the whole thing blew up. It's still hanging out there. Is there going to be more COVID funding, right? And so another place they could get COVID funding passed is on this CR, um, you know, Democrats so republicans are resistant and they say they there should be enough money out there they can reprogram without needing new money that's debatable the administration already did some of that reprogramming um but if they want more a logical place to get it done would be on this cr and so that opens up a whole other can of worms over how much more COVID money is needed and under what conditions and can they attach it so um Even a simple stopgap is not so simple, and it's going to take a a big effort again just to get that over the finish line. Steve?
1: The current appropriation process calls for uh, Congress to pass 12 separate appropriation bills. Uh, The deadline is October 1st of each fiscal, which is the beginning of the fiscal year. And as you pointed out, they they actually haven't met that goal since the mid-1990s. So, you know, some people might look at that as that's sort of evidence that the current process isn't working and there have been ideas over the years about, you know, what, what we could do differently or, you know, could you change the process to make it work better? And one idea, for example, is you know, what they call biennial budgeting or biennial appropriation so that instead of doing this every year, they would only do it every two years and that's one reform that's been mentioned. The other reform is, you know, as you point out, that if they don't pass all the bills on time... The government would shut down unless they pass a sort of a, what's called a continuing resolution, which basically you know, puts the government on autopilot. And so, you know, there have been some people who say, well, you know, look, maybe we should just pass sort of a permanent continuing resolution. So the government is always funded. And so you don't have to deal with a shutdown. And then the question becomes, well, everybody always wants a little more for something. And then they can get together and negotiate, you know, any sort of add-ons or supplementals or you know, whatever you want to call it. But at least, you know, they wouldn't be holding the entire government hostage while they worked out some desire to spend extra money for something. I mean, what what are your thoughts about, you know, are there improvements that could be made to the process that would make it work better? Uh, and, and maybe there's some others that I didn't, didn't mention.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, they have looked at this before um, because we've been operating under a budget process that that was created in 1974. Uh, and it hasn't really changed much since then. And by and large, you could argue it hasn't worked very well. <laughs> uh, you know, the just stuff can't get done on time. And when it does happen, it gets done in a mush in this huge omnibus package at the end of the year, uh, which no one has time to review or analyze. Um, it's not a very pretty process. Uh, and so there have been periodic efforts to look at how could we make the process better? And even just a couple years ago, there seemed to be a little momentum to do that. And as you said, Steve, uh, w- one of the one of the things they were looking at pretty strongly, in fact, was biennial budgeting, so that you would do a budget every two years, so that at least there'd be a little more, a little more time for agencies to plan if they knew they had a two-year budget locked in place a little more time to review spending in the off year, you know, uh, the year they didn't have to do a new budget. There's some merit to that. Um, basically, it breaks down because everybody agrees the current process doesn't work very well, but no one can really agree on how to fix it. And for every solution you come up with, there are drawbacks. And one, one pushback on the biennial budgeting idea, I think, came from appropriators 'Cause they didn't want to give up their power to fund programs every year. They don't they don't want to be relegated to just a every other year, uh, every other year process uh, because it gives them less leverage, frankly, and but, less but, opportunities to change stuff.
1: But that doesn't that doesn't preclude them from doing supplementals, which they usually do. Even sure, sure
0: but, not, but not in the most comprehensive way as, as an annual budget, of course. So there's pushback there. The other thing you mentioned uh, has been looked at. There's this idea of automatic stopgaps, right? So, so if they can't finish their appropriations on time, instead of having to pass a stopgap with all the political jockeying that comes with it, why not just have it take effect automatically to give them more time? Um, so that you don't risk a government shutdown, which sends everybody into a panic. There's good arguments for that because it does avoid the risk of a shutdown, which really does throw the government into, into chaos and comes at a big cost, by the way, because um, there's cost in, in shutting down and restarting. And, you know, it's very disruptive, plus the fact you can't get government services. Um, the pushback on that, I believe, was, well, if you if you... If you do automatic stop gaps, it's going to be too easy to delay appropriations. You'll never get them done because then you can just keep automatically extending ad infinitum. And there's really Congress only gets stuff done when there's a deadline. And if there's really no deadline anymore, how do you ever really get full appropriations done? So for everything they come up with, there's always going to be a counter argument. And there's just never been enough consensus. On how to change the process, and frankly, you know, there's also uh, some some folks just say, "Look, the problem isn't really the process; it's them, it's us." <laughs> uh, you know, ultimately, this is a political process, and no matter what, no matter what rules you set up, they're going to be avoided or bent, uh, or delayed or whatever. If there's not the political will there to get stuff done, and ultimately, it's on lawmakers to get it done and they just haven't been able to do it very much. And, and unless there's a real crisis, um, it's hard to see a major overhaul of the budget process happening simply because there won't be the sense of urgency to do it. And it, you know it's gonna be put on the back burner as other issues come up. There's not the compelling, Congress only moves when there's a real compelling need for something. And, and this is just not gonna be that high of a priority. It's a little esoteric. Um, So it's hard to imagine a big budget overhaul right now happening, particularly in this polarized Congress, because both parties would have to work on this and agree to a new process.
2: This is the time to uh, cite the uh, former CBO director, Rudy Penner, who famously said the problem isn't the process. The problem is the problem. Uh, And I think that's what you were describing, that uh, if there isn't the political will to get this stuff done, that it won't get done, no matter how good the process is. Well, David, uh, that we're going to have to leave it there. That's all the time we have for uh, this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I have been talking with uh, David Lerman, who's the editor of the Congressional Quarterly Budget Tracker. We've been uh, discussing the congressional appropriations process. I've Harris of the Concord Coalition and Steve Robinson of the Concord Coalition have joined in the conversation. Thanks for joining us. And I hope you can join us again next week for another edition of Facing the Future.